Сан. Четыре. You're tuning in to Don't Sleep New York, a podcast for the New Yorker who wants to stay up on policy and politics in the city that never sleeps. My name is Arpan, and I'm joined by Matt and Rana Joy. We're three New Yorkers who are trying to become more informed about the inner workings of our city, and we want to take you along for the ride. In this episode, we're going to take a deeper look at affordable housing in New York City. People make $15 an hour. It's really hard to imagine how an average single-bedroom apartment that costs $3,000 a month is affordable. I had to move out of the city because the price was too high. You've probably heard that the city has an affordable housing crisis, and at a high level, you know what that means. In our research, we found this to be a really complex topic that touches on everything from climate change to homelessness to education and more. So for the purposes of our episode, we're going to try to keep it simple to help you better understand the discussions you might start hearing about affordable housing, especially in the lead up to the mayoral race. So Matt, why don't you kick us off with the basics? Let's start with what the government defines as affordable. According to NYC.gov, housing is considered affordable if it costs about one third or less of what the people living there earn. This is referred to as the Area Median Income, or AMI. The 2020 AMI for New York City is just over $100,000 for a three-person family. The city uses this as a benchmark and then takes percentages of the AMI to create affordable housing categories. New York City defines 30% or lower of AMI as extremely low income, 31 to 50% of AMI as very low income, and 51 to 80% of AMI as low income. To give you a bit of context, if you're a family of three and your total family income is about $30,000, you would qualify in the 30% or less of AMI bracket. So, a two-bedroom apartment under affordable housing guidelines should come out to roughly $600 a month. Okay, so we've defined affordable, but Ranajoy, what is the city doing to make sure this housing is available? Well. Under the leadership of Bill de Blasio, New York City has built or preserved roughly 167,000 affordable housing units. Sounds great, right? Well, it's not that simple. This stock of housing often fails to target those residents who are most in need. There's a big difference between 80% AMI and 30% AMI. A recent Community Service Society report found that 72% of low-income tenants were rent burdened, defined as those who pay more than 30% of their income for housing. Why has this been so ineffective? What can the next mayor do better? We talked about the basis of affordable housing comes from the definition of AMI, but who determines that? So the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, is a federal organization that determines AMI and refers to the New York City region, which includes beyond the city itself, Westchester County, Rockland County, and Putnam County. So already by including those regions, you're inflating the definition of AMI, which is, again, the basis for how those affordable housing brackets are determined for residents of New York City, not of those other counties. Right. But doesn't the city know that? If the city knows we have an inflated AMI, which is a federal statistic, why don't they just 
decrease the percentages that they're using for the different affordable housing categories. Right now we went over zero to 30% and there's something 80%. Why don't you just lower those things? That seems like an easy solution to get around a potentially flawed federal statistic, no? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's two ways you can think about it, right? The starting point is too high. So when you're building in incentive models, it'll be tougher or you'll require more incentives to get folks to address the lower percentage brackets. But if you're 100% is just lower, anything you're doing between 50 to 80, 80 to 100, 100 to 120 is already addressing more of the population than what the 100% right now represents. And so whose needs are being addressed, I guess, is really the question. Well, I think the problem is the people whose needs are most urgent, which would be people between zero and 30% of AMI. Extremely low income. Extremely low income. Their housing stock is not increasing. And some of this makes sense based on the incentive system, like you mentioned, Ron and Joy. If I'm a developer and there's all these credits that I might get in exchange for being allowed to develop in a certain area, I need to provide a certain amount of my housing to affordable units. If I have the choice, I'd like to provide those to the affordable uh, bracket that's around 80%, not 30%. And I understand why they're saying that. It might not be right. But how do we actually combat that? I mean, just to take one step back, Matt, like the proof's in the pudding. So, so far what de Blasio has done, he's preserved or created 66,000 new units for 51 to 80%, 25,000 units for 0 to 30%, and then 16,000 units for... the 121 to 165%. He's essentially almost made as many units for people above 100% AMI as he has for the people who are making minimum wage or below. Right. And I think that's it's even exacerbated when I take a look at the, the statistics here. The number of units required there is the highest. And yet that's not the area that's getting the most supply. 500,000. And de Blasio's overall plan is for 300,000 units. And I think it's important to acknowledge that the bigger aspect of affordable housing is actually preservation and not new bills. The majority of the housing that goes toward the affordable housing that goes toward de Blasio's headline number is actually housing he's preserving. And preserving means rent stabilizing, which happens in a couple different ways, right? It's refinancing for developers. It's giving tax breaks. It's putting solar in. It's taking care of the maintenance. And this is the government taking care of this so that developers aren't spending as much and can arguably maintain affordability. What's interesting is that uh, the concept of preserving has shifted over the last few mayors. Uh, It used to be, let's make this decrepit building something inhabitable by people. And now it's moved into what you'd mentioned more, more around financing and uh, improving to keep energy costs down, et cetera. And and, And I think there's been certain things the de Blasio administration has probably done well, but they also tout that 267,000 new or preserved affordable housing units as a, a success metric for his eight years in office. But again, as we're, we're diving deeper, what I don't understand is why isn't that a factor? Why isn't allocating affordable housing units that are either being built or preserved, why isn't it being allocated based on the brackets? I think it partially goes to some of the legislation that exists. So if you look at the Mandatory Inclusionary Housing Act, that de Blasio put in, the options that both the city and the developer can choose from don't really touch on that zero to 30%. Option one is either making sure 10% required or at 40%. And then option two, it just on average is 80%, which 
when you tell a developer to do that, they're going to err on the side of making more money. Yeah. And that also, you know, begs an interesting question then of who who are the people in the 50 to 80% who are qualifying? And I'm not saying that they don't they don't, they're not necessarily low income families, but they clearly don't have the most need. And we should be servicing all needs, but the policies right now, are right skewing. Now it's, not, it's not proportionate because we have the data that says the most need is zero to 30%. And yet the most new units created or most new units preserved is within that 50, 80% bracket. Yeah. And that's, that's led to some interesting statistics when you think about the lottery system to actually win affordable housing. Yeah, it's a little bit dark if you think about it, right? I mean, we could go as far as say housing should be a human, right? I don't, I don't think that's crazy for a country as great as the USA, at least as we claim to be. And yet it's a bit dark that we also have this system where in order to get housing that's affordable, we have to enter this lottery. I think something like 25 million people have entered the lottery in the last since, few years. Since 2013. Since 2013 for something like tens or hundreds of thousands of units. I mean, a very small fraction. I mean, that that's kind of a dark commentary on where we are. Yeah, it's... A- and if you YouTube affordable housing New York City, the top hits are not official New York City or NYCHA pages. That's New York City um, Housing Authority pages. They're individual YouTube videos on how to win the affordable housing lottery and how to up your chances. Why don't we take a listen to, to one of these channels and hear how they talk about what affordable housing really is. Because we are part of the affordable housing program here in NYC. And we wanted to take a minute in this video to talk about how uh, we got the apartment, what that experience was like for us, what the affordable housing program is, and our top tips for how to go about securing an apartment in that program. New York's affordable housing program allows people with medium, moderate, low incomes to live in more expensive areas of the city. So right there, I mean, they talked about two things that really stood out to me. Medium to moderate to low income, all grouped together. And the other thing that stood out to me is the purpose of affordable housing is to give people a place to live. It's not to allow you to live in a more expensive area. That's not, that shouldn't be the interpretation of affordable housing. Yeah. And I I think if we kind of think about what the new mayors or mayoral candidates should do, or the lens to think about it through, one, you want to be informed about what affordable housing means, which now we know to mean a third of your paycheck goes toward rent. So when they say that, they don't necessarily mean who is making minimum wage. They're just talking about a third of your paycheck. And we should push them to have policies that address the specific brackets of most need. So the plans should directly address those. The new zoning laws, upzoning, new bills, should specifically target mandatory inclusion of units that address those brackets. Can you, let, let's back up a little bit. Upzoning. What is upzoning? So upzoning is essentially where you're permitted to build higher. And if you think about it, this incentivizes new developers to build somewhere because you have a set amount of land and the more floors you build, the more units you house, which means the more money you can yeah. make. And that also, one of the books that was referenced a ton in this author has done a lot of work to talk about affordable housing um, is Samuel Stein, uh, the author of Capital City. Matt, maybe you can read an excerpt from Capital City that I think really speaks to when we talk about zoning and upzoning and rezoning, some of the things that we should really keep in mind. Okay, great idea, Arpan. So 
Here's from the book, Take Inclusionary Zoning. It leans on the private sector, developers, to produce a social good, affordable housing, and it does so by granting developers the ability to build bigger and therefore collect more rent. If inclusionary zoning were only used in rich white enclaves and never in neighborhoods at risk of gentrification, its results would be notably different, forcing the wealthy to integrate at least a little bit rather than gentrifying the city and calling it progress. That's a pretty scathing attack of the city's policies so far to address affordable housing, but really dives deeper into this idea of zoning and upzoning and taking neighborhoods like Park Slope, for example, where you will not see a high-rise building and there's not more land to develop in Park Slope. So how do you increase affordable housing in a neighborhood like that? I think the problem is the residents of Park Slope have enough political capital to be able to prevent and push back against any upzoning. Whereas in more impoverished neighborhoods, what you get is gentrification. On the surface, the city can look at this and say, this is great progress. Before you had a really decrepit neighborhood, now you have these nice modern luxury buildings. And don't worry, 20-30% of those buildings are for affordable housing. But of course, of that 20-30%, how much is actually for that 0-30% to bracket? Probably almost nothing. Um, And then the current residents get priced out and can't live there anymore. But those in office could claim like, well, look at this. This neighborhood went from having no affordable housing to now it has all these new units because we were able to build all of these new high rise buildings and ensure that some percent of them went to affordable housing. But the reality on the ground is that the people who really need affordable housing have to go live in another neighborhood. And that's that's the tragedy. of. So clearly there's a lot of problems. Right. And, And the current approach has been touted as progress, and maybe some of it is progress, you know, if we're just comparing to, to what's been done in the past. But it's going to be really interesting. What, what, are the, what are the ways the next mayor is going to have to think about affordable housing if they really want to tackle this problem at its core? I think the biggest problem is the next mayor, and call me pessimistic, I don't think this is going to happen, but the next mayor needs to actually confront the real estate state, as uh, Samuel Stein would say in, in Capital City, the amount of money and power in real estate in New York City in particular is unfathomable. There's no sign of any of this slowing down uh, because of that power of capital and how that's infected the government as well. You also have a certain sense of NIMBY, not in my backyard. We mentioned this when talking about Park Slope as an example, where you have a lot of landowners who don't want to see affordable housing in their neighborhood because they assume it will lower their land value. So I think the next mayor has to somehow confront this behemoth of capital. And I, I don't know how they can do that. It seems like the incentive system isn't lined up, but there is a confrontation that needs to happen in that respect. If you're feeling overwhelmed, you're not alone. Like we said earlier, the housing crisis in New York City is a massive issue and it can be really complicated. But we hope you learned enough to better engage with the issue because it's not going away anytime soon. If you want to dive deeper, you can visit the Community Service Society of New York. And if you want to help, check out Breaking Ground. Matt also highly recommends Capital City by Samuel Stein. He's been asking us to read it forever. So that's our episode for today. Thanks for tuning in. The music in this episode was provided by Brooklyn-based artist and producer, Jackery. You can follow us on social media at Don't Sleep NY. 
and email us at don'tsleepnypodcast at gmail.com. Leave some comments, suggestions, or just say hi. We'll see you in a few weeks. Until then, don't sleep.